are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. A reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. The Living Stone and a Chosen People. As you come to Him, the Living Stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a chosen people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks again, Donna, for being a reader this morning and sharing God's word with us. A few years ago, I had the chance to visit my relatives, so these distant relatives in Norway, for the first time. You know, with a name like Bjorn, uh, it doesn't take a long time to figure out I have Scandinavian roots. And so with my family, was able to go back and visit our relatives that we stay in touch with, but I'd never been there before. And we got such a warm welcome as we arrived and we stepped onto the farm where my great-great-grandfather had left back in 1869. His name was Berent Didrikson, and he was 19 years old. Life in Norway at that time was pretty tough. And there was this new opportunity to come to America and to homestead. And so in 1869, he said goodbye to his mom and dad and a number of his siblings. He and his brother then went to Stavanger and uh, hopped on a ship that was bound for Quebec. They landed in Quebec, uh, made their way over from there to Eagle Bend, Minnesota, where they started a homestead, he and his brother. So to be back where it all started, to be on the land where they said goodbye to their family, never to see them again, and went out that front gate, it was really kind of this sacred feeling experience. We actually spent the night there in the farmhouse. And I asked my relatives on the day that we were to leave, if I could maybe just take a small stone from somewhere on the land as a way to remember this and have this tangible connection to this special place. And so they said, yes, of course. And I went out to the creek that morning that ran through their front yard and I fished out this stone right here. I keep it on my nightstand. This stone from my great, great grandfather's farm. And sometimes now, you know, if I'm, I'm coming to you here from, you know, just alongside my side of the bed and, you know, sometimes I can't sleep and you're laying on your side, just kind of looking at the wall. I'll see this stone. And I might pick it up in my hands and just, just remember that beautiful place there up in the mountains of Norway. And remember how a young man of 19, my great-great-grandfather, left 
his home in search of a better life. There is something about a stone that feels just timeless. I mean, it has this kind of ancient feel to it. It is unchanging. And I think, boy, do we need something right now in this time that we're living in that we can hold on to and something that feels certain. And as we open God's word today, we're reminded this is exactly why we turn to pages like these in First Peter, because this is a place where we can find something to hold on to that is unchanging and will last forever. It is the rock in a time of sinking sand. Jesus said at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so we're turning to 1 Peter 2 today in our message series, and we're asking the Lord if, if he would enable us to hear his word, to have the will to do it, and the help of the Holy Spirit to carry out what he puts on our hearts. Uh, so let's pray as we open the word together. Just a short, simple prayer. What we know not, Lord, we ask that you teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, oh Lord, would you give us. We ask for Jesus' sake, and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Peter, as you might remember, was a fisherman. And though a fisherman he was at the start, make no mistake about it, this guy could write. By the time he is writing his first letter, the one that we have open in front of us today, he had spent three years in the school of following Jesus and many years under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And he writes this letter to scattered churches across what today is northern Turkey, this vast region that was home to five Roman provinces Peter names them at the start of his letter. And the Christians there were under immense pressure. To believe in Jesus was not a popular decision. It was not the majority position by any means in their culture. In fact, at this time now, there was outright hostility and persecution that was taking place. So if you believed in Jesus, you could lose your property. You could lose your business. You could be imprisoned or even killed just because you said, I follow Jesus. And it's into this situation that Peter writes this letter. In the text before us today, I found and outlined two major statements that I think Paul is trying to make. And I'll show you the page that I work with too. I mean, sometimes, especially in the epistles, just to kind of map it out is almost what you have to do to make sense of this very dense kind of theological text. There's a very Greek style to the New Testament letters. And sometimes I find we can lose the forest for the trees. And so what we do is take a step back, map this thing out. And here's these key statements that I find in verses 5 and 9. And really everything around them is going to serve the expansion or support of those two statements. So here's the first one. We're going to have two of these today. The first point that Peter is making is this. We are being built into a spiritual house like living stones. We're being built into a spiritual house like living stones in a time that is very shaky. And when the lives of believers were being torn down, Peter says to the church there in northern Turkey, he says, you are actually being built up into a spiritual house like living stones. That's verse five. 
That's the main point that Peter makes from here all the way till verse 9, where we'll pick up the second one. But before we talk under this heading about living stones with a lowercase s, we want to look at the basis for it, because that is what is before verse 5 and after verse 5, all around it, and that's the living stone with a capital S. Verse 4, this is how Peter begins. He says, as you come to him, the living stone. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus is called the living stone. And isn't it fitting that it is, of all people, Peter, who calls him the living stone? Just remember back with me to when Jesus first meets Peter in John chapter 1. Jesus says to him, you are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter, the rock. And then we have this momentous occasion later in the Gospels when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And then what does he say? And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Peter, the rock is the one who calls Jesus the living stone. We think of stones in our normal setting as things that are inert, dead, inorganic matter, but not Jesus. He is called the living stone because he rose from the grave. The huge tombstone was rolled away and the living stone walked out. And that title then will give way in this text to another image in the verses that follow, that Jesus is not just the living stone, but he is the cornerstone. At our house, we've lived next to an empty lot for the last 10 years that has just sat empty in this development because of the 2008 recession. And then finally, earlier this summer, it sold and construction began on a new house. And I remember the day that the bricklayers arrived. Here I've been kind of watching this construction progress day by day. And here come the bricklayers. So the foundation was poured, and now they're going to lay those first foundation stones upon it. And I'm munching on my bowl of cereal at the breakfast table watching this play out. And during that time, as, as all these bricklayers are getting their materials ready and kind of staging everything, there's this one guy who looks like the foreman or at least has a lot of experience under his belt. And he is over at the corner of the foundation with what will be the very first stone, the cornerstone. And I could tell, I mean, he, he's working so methodically, taking his time. He has all these leveling tripods that are out and making the, the smallest adjustments. He'd tap on this side of the block and then tap on the other. And he worked on it until he was fully satisfied that it was level. And then the whole team of bricklayers could begin their work. Our construction methods now might look a little bit different than they did 2,000 years ago, but this principle of the cornerstone has remained the same. The cornerstone is so important because it sets both the angle of the walls up and down, but also it sets the angle of the whole structure, the whole house, from side to side. And so selecting the cornerstone and then setting the cornerstone in place is a very labor-intensive process. 
you don't want to rush it. You don't want to make compromises about what you would use. If the stone is not exactly right, the builders will reject it. And that's what happened to Jesus. But the problem was not the stone in this case. It was the builders. They rejected Jesus because he didn't fit their idea of a Messiah, of what the Savior should look like, according to them. They didn't like that he was born in a stable in Bethlehem or that his father was this Galilean carpenter, Joseph. They didn't like that he would come in such a humble estate and not be born a prince of Israel down in Jerusalem. They didn't like that the Messiah would then start to preach a message about sin and repentance. They didn't like how Jesus would describe the kingdom of God or who he was inviting into it. They didn't like that overthrowing Rome wasn't on his agenda, apparently. I mean, he didn't have political or military aspirations. They especially didn't like it when he started to call out their hypocrisy or their status-seeking behavior. He was not the savior that they wanted. And so they rejected him and crucified him. But what they rejected, God had chosen. And not just chosen, but it says the living stone was precious to God. This word precious keeps coming up in the text. And I wonder, do you know how many gemstones are considered precious? A little trivia question this morning. How many gemstones are considered precious? There's four of them. Do you know what those four are? And this is, ladies, where you might take some sermon notes and then slip them over to your husband when we're all done. But here are the four precious gemstones in the world. They are diamonds, emeralds, rubies, and sapphire. And you might say, well, wait a minute, what about pearls or opal or jade or many of the others? No, those are semi-precious. There are only four that are considered precious. Only a diamond is forever, right? It's just a great slogan. How often do you and I stop to consider the father considering his son to be precious? And we're going to dive into some deeper theological waters now. I I think sometimes we study scripture in a way that gets unintentionally too, very me focused. Like, where is the life application? You know, what is there for me to get out of it? And the Bible has plenty of very practical things to say to you and I. It's deeply concerned about that. But we have not discovered the riches of scripture if we cannot simply marvel at who God is. Look at the relationship within the Trinity. You remember what God said when Jesus was baptized? This is the story where the sky above the Jordan River gets torn open. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And God the Father says, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Like he can hardly stand it and he tears open the heavens and he says, that's my boy. That's my boy. Do we stop to consider this relationship between the father and son? Isaiah saw this coming and he said these words in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. At his baptism, the spirit descends like a dove. In my study this week, I came across these lines that I thought were so good. I want to share them with you. Consider the intensity of the father's love for his only son as he took the role of a servant, accepted the father's will in Gethsemane, 
and accomplished his task on Calvary. He says, consider the intensity of the Father's love. So let's not miss that today, that every practical matter of faith ultimately flows out of who God is and what he has done, his character, his accomplishments. And today we're seeing that the Father delights in the finished work of the Son. Jesus goes all the way to the cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to satisfy God's wrath, to fulfill the Father's love. And then God the Father does what? He exalts the Son to the highest place, and he's seated there today at the right hand of the Father. What affection there is between the Father and the Son. And I know that some of us struggle to relate to God as Father, because our earthly example of a Father was abusive, was aloof, was absent, was alcoholic, was unaffectionate. But that is not God. The foundation of our relationships is the loving relationship that God has for his son. The builders rejected him, but God said, no, no, he's, he's my chosen one. He is precious to me. And then within three verses back in 1 Peter, we find Peter quoting all three Old Testament texts that refer to the cornerstone. He says to us, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Do you think those early Christians that Peter was writing to were experiencing shame by their neighbors, by their employers, by the emperor of Rome? Absolutely. They were maligned. They were mocked. They were bullied. They were beaten. Some were even being publicly executed for Nero in Rome, just like Jesus, because they had believed in Jesus. And Peter says to us, contrary to what you see here and now, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So in 2020, let's trust in him this year. With every new day that we have, that we have breath in our lungs, that we have time on this earth, let's trust in him. Jesus, the cornerstone, is precious to those who believe. Is he precious to you? But to those who do not believe, it says he's a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You've probably heard the term before, stumbling block, to be a stumbling block. And this is where that comes from. Literally in the Greek here, it says a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And that word for offense there is scandalos. It's where we get our word scandal. A scandal causes someone to fall. This stumbling stone causes people to fall. It trips people up. That's the story for those who do not believe. Instead of a cornerstone, he turns into a stumbling stone. And Peter gives us a reason for that in the text, doesn't he? He says, they stumble because they disobey the message. They stumble because they refuse to hear the word of God. It's flat-out rebellion. They stumble because they do not want to submit to God's authority and his lordship. They're saying, I'm going to do it my way. But God has set his cornerstone in place. The builders might be squabbling and fiddling with their trowels and shovels, but God has set his cornerstone with the resurrection. This is the living stone, and you can reject him, or you can be built up upon him. All of that is the basis for what we said here a few minutes ago, the first point in verse 5. 
We who believe are being built into a spiritual house like living stones. The commentator William Barclay tells the story of a Spartan king who was entertaining a guest king from another land who had come to visit him. And so he took his guest on a tour of the city. And the other king is looking around and could see that there were no city walls. And so he said to him, he says, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? At which the Spartan king pointed to his army. And he said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. Now, I'm not Spartan, nor am I a king by any means, but I could imagine a scenario where someone shows up at our address, 13337 Business Center Drive in Elk River, and they're standing outside the YMCA. They ask, where is the Y Church? There's no sign on the building. Where is the Y Church? At which point I would point to all of you and I would say, this is the Y Church. You want to see the Y Church? Don't expect a tour of a building, especially not this year. Can't have a normal worship service on a Sunday because of COVID? No problem. The church is still the church. You're going to find it gathered around backyard bonfires, inviting neighbor kids over for VBS in a box. If you're looking for the church, you're going to find it serving dinners at curbside for the YMCA or bringing meals over to a family who is grieving. You're going to find the church meeting on Zoom to discuss race in the church or making new friends in South Minneapolis this summer. You're going to find the church studying the Psalms in small Y groups that are gathered across the city. The walls are strong. The church is doing just fine in this COVID season, because God in his grace is building us up like living stones, not physical stones. We are being built on real estate that we could never afford. We are being built into a spiritual house like living stones out of the mercy of God. And I hope that you know that you are a brick, a precious stone in the hand of the bricklayer. The cornerstone is in place. And may you want nothing more than to be aligned to his will for your life. That brings us to Peter's second key statement in this passage. The first one was, we're being built into a spiritual house like living stones. And the second one is this. You are chosen by God to declare his praise. The first one was in verse five, and now we're down in verse nine. And verse nine has these four you are statements that we should really just count off here. Here's what it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, who does that describe in the Old Testament? I mean, it's clear as day to these original readers, it was Israel. This is the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, the descendants of Abraham. But God's intent was always to work through Israel to bring redemption to people of every nation and every tribe and every tongue. It's written all over the New Testament, this vision of when many nations, even enemy nations, will be gathered in worship under the banner of the Savior. One of my favorite previews of that future day is in Isaiah 19. Now, before I read you a couple verses, let me just remind us here, we're going to hear 
Egypt. And we need to remember that Egypt was the quintessential enemy of Israel in the Old Testament, enslaving God's people. The other name we're going to hear is Assyria, and that's the nation that destroyed the northern kingdom. That's why Jonah, if you remember the story about the whale, that's why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because of Assyria. But listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, in that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, listen to this, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. There's a trio of words that pop up in 1 Peter 2.9 that we should really note together. Um, Three very important Greek words, genos, you are a chosen genos. We get our word generation from that word. Some of the most literal Bible translations like the NASB, Amplified, the ESV, all translate it as race. You are a chosen race. The next key word is ethnos. That's where we get our word ethnicity. You are a holy nation. And the third word is laos, the word for people group. You are a people, a people group for God's possession. This past week, I gave a keynote message via Zoom for a YMCA conference in northern India. And per their request, I shared on a text from John chapter 14, a message about fear and anxiety in the midst of the pandemic. This conference was based out of Faridabad YMCA, which is in northern India near Delhi, There were about 60 Y leaders on this Zoom conference together, but they were from all over India, Pakistan, Malaysia, Dubai, and so on. Leaders in their YMCA is navigating this pandemic, uh, followers of Jesus gathering together for this YMCA virtual retreat. And as I looked at the screen with all of those boxes of names and faces that look so different from mine, and as we spent time in worship and singing and prayer together, I felt like it was a preview of what heaven will be like someday. New Testament scholar Karen Jobes draws this conclusion. She writes, Peter here makes the radical claim that those who believe in Jesus Christ, though from many races, constitute a new race of those who have been born again into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is the foundational cure for the evils of racism in human society. We're in a time where our country is clamoring to figure out how to be anti-racist. If we could just arrive at that ideal, but I'll tell you this, we will not reach such a lofty goal on the ideals of secularism. Not until we bend our knee To the lordship of Jesus will our nation be knit together in love. The foundational cure for racism is to be born again. At its core, it is not a societal problem. It's a spiritual problem requiring a spiritual cure. Peter says, you were chosen by God to declare his praise. You were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you remember Peter's dramatic rescue from a jail cell in Acts 12? It was nighttime when this happened. He was sleeping between two soldiers bound by two chains. There were guards stationed at the door. And suddenly, it says, an angel of the Lord appeared 
and a light shone in the cell. That is the story that Charles Wesley had in mind when he wrote this hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We are the people of God and the recipients of his mercy. What did Peter do that night to get out of jail? What did he do? He did nothing. He was fast asleep. It was the mercy of God that called him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Have you made that shift yet? Have you received that gift of mercy? Do you know that you are chosen by God to declare his praise? When we were planning for this conference, and I would hop on WhatsApp or Zoom to work with the Indian conference organizers out of Faridabad, guess how they would always say hello when we would greet each other? They would say, praise the Lord, Pastor Bjorn. That's how they said hi every time. And so I caught on pretty quick, and then I would respond, and I would say, praise the Lord, Brother Koshi. Praise the Lord, Brother Varghese. Praise the Lord, Brother Samson. Because of the living stone, Jesus Christ, we are being built into a people who will declare God's praise. And so as we close, and as you begin a new week, I want to encourage you to declare his praise in two ways. We see this throughout Scripture to praise God for what he has done, and to praise God for who he is. And I encourage you, find specific reasons. Name them out loud. I mean, in the midst of school decisions and social media drama, set it outside and just speak his praise. Be a living stone in a time of stumbling for so many. In the midst of a hard year and uncertainty about the next one, Declare his praise this week. In the midst of a contracting economy and an election year, declare his praise. In the midst of sadness and grief, anxiety and hardship, you can still say, praise the Lord. Because God is building us up. And our foundation is the cornerstone, the living stone that is Christ Jesus our Savior. To him be glory in the church, and all the living stones said, Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.